You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week... We take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week, where we got into quite a good debate about machine learning and whether this can help strategies like trend following. And also, we did a deep dive into the difference between systematic global macro strategies and traditional trend following. So I hope that you will go back and check this out should you have missed it. Rob, it's great to be back with you this week, of course, as usual. How are you doing? How are things in the UK? Yeah, pretty good. I feel like I should apologize for, for being unfaithful to the, this podcast because I was doing another live YouTube session just over a week ago, which I understand that Jerry certainly listened to because I heard some a few comments from him last week, not last episode before last week, which were interesting to listen to. Well, apology accepted, but let's not talk about that anymore. No more discretion from your side, Rob. Now, in terms of uh, kind of a market wrap, I mean, of course, there is some historical evidence for the saying, sell in May and go away. But it seems like investors are not quite ready to give up on the current equity bull market with sentiment being wildly optimistic, which is why, of course, stock prices are at a new high in many countries, certainly in the US. One of the most important aspects of the current stock market mania is the sense of normalcy that investors feel with respect to historical levels of valuation and speculation, which is something that I think is really interesting and also somewhat concerning. Now, the first, I should say that again, the first four months of 2021 have witnessed some noteworthy events, let's put it that way. GameStop, which was a money-losing or is a money-losing game retailer, video game retailer, and chat room favorite. That set the tone, followed by a New Jersey deli with sales of $35,000 per annum. That got a market capitalization of $113 million. Then came the spectacular blow-up of the family office, Archegos, which is very unusual to have an event like that in a bull market. Greensill scandal that Credit Suisse also found itself in the middle of. And lately, of course, we see some insane or lofty, depending on how you want to frame it, prices being paid for computer code, like NFTs. Of course, this really could be the new normal, but I have a sneaky feeling that at some point, common sense will return to investors in some of these assets. And what I hope is that investors will make use of these quote-unquote bubble-like periods to put in place some true diversification in their portfolios by including strategies like trend following and other long divergence slash long volatility type strategies. Now, the last week of April played out pretty much as advertised. The FOMC meeting concluded with the committee leaving the current Fed funds rate unchanged and woe to continue to buy treasury notes and mortgage-backed securities in the open market. But in the post-meeting press conference, Powell reiterated that they believed the uptick in inflation will prove transitory, so they are comfortable with the status quo. 
But when pressed on whether the committee has begun discussions on how to taper and when that would be enacted, he responded that they haven't even talked about talking about taper. It reminds me of this Donald Rumsfeld quote, right? Known, unknown, and all of that stuff. But if the rising commodity prices that we saw in April and so far this year is any guide, I think they will have to start talking about this sooner rather than later. Now, Rob, I'm curious to what stood out for you in April. I know this is really, since it's the 1st of May today, I don't know if you have all your data ready in terms of performance and all that good stuff, but I'd love to hear how things panned out. I do have my data ready, actually. Interestingly, the last week or so, I've been doing a lot of computer coding and refactoring my performance attribution code. So it's very nice code now. It's very pretty, and I'm very pleased with it. Whether it's accurate or not, I don't know, but I do have some figures anyway. So actually, April was an interesting month because for much of it, I felt like I was making money nearly every single day. Not big money, but just steady profits nearly every single day. So it's no surprise, actually, that although the last three days or so of of the month, things did move against me. In particular, my position in corn became a bit uh, costly, but everything else, you know, overall, the month's been pretty good. So I was actually up 8.2% in in the month of April, which obviously, you know, my own standard is is a pretty good performance. And yeah, good performance in corn, also wheat, soybeans. So very much in the agricultural products and some small losses into things like um, yen, US dollar and in the oat French bond futures. So yeah, an excellent month really all round. And then just to look at last week, just as a direct comparison with the figures that I'm I'm sure you're going to present in a moment. So yeah, that turnaround halfway through the week actually ended up being a, a small loss last week, 40 basis points with the gains really, again, coming, the loss reversed, really. So losses in the agricultural commodities like corn, where things reversed, also in, in lean hogs, my, the, there was a bit of a reversal there. So modest losses, but overall for the month, I'm very happy. Yeah, I would be as well. It's funny, you know, how it is that when you can't when you can't beat the competition, you start talking about them as worthy rivals. So, so I, I think that's how I'm going to think about you today. But actually, on our side, our trend-following portfolio had also a really strong month of April, just shy of your results for the month, but actually up double digit for the year or more, a little bit more than double digit for the year. About 70% of the markets in our trend following portfolio contributed positively this month, but the bulk of the performance really did come from the grain sector with corn delivering the highest single market contribution. And as we've been talking about on the podcast, really since last summer, commodities have had a strong uptrends, which trend follows in general, have been quite good at capturing, I would say, after years of that sector really being somewhat difficult, at least on our side. And I think this illustrates the importance of diversification, but also why we don't give up easily on markets, even if they've been a little bit difficult and not really contributed for a while. I know that's a question we get uh, from time to time. Equities also did well in terms of contribution, of course. The current uptrends are very uh, constructive for a trend-following portfolio. On the negative side this month, we had a little bit of loss in meats, a little bit of loss in fixed income, but nothing really that dramatic. In our volatility strategy, if you look at the month of April, it was interesting to see that despite the S&P was up more than 5%, the VIX was only down one point for the month. And uh, the VIX futures term structure remains unchanged since the medium VIX futures, the two to four months futures, declined uh, a little bit. So on our side, we had uh, an up month, another up month in our volatility program, not nearly as much as the trend following side, but still 
decent, so also up for the year. And the main drivers really for, for the month was the steepening positions on the VIX futures term structure. And we did see a little bit of reduction actually in exposure in the strategy towards the end of the month. So it's a little bit below average. Now, on my trend-following portfolio, I don't have as much detail as I normally do because I had some technical problems this morning. Maybe I need for you to look at my code. <laughs> no, I had some problems with Windows annoyingly enough anyways but i don't use windows names. oh my god yeah so the uh, but i do think the numbers are accurate so anyways the month was up 3.38 percent it brings the portfolio up 12.58 percent for the year the best performance came from the classic trend following models up 2.45 percent and the discretionary slash long only type models were up 1.38 percent and then I had a small loss of 38 basis points in the fast-reacting Group 3 models. And then in terms of attribution of sectors, no surprise, equities did best, followed by base metals and grain coming in third. And the worst sectors were currencies, followed by bonds, and energies were flat, but they were a little bit down. And if we look at the risk to stop, so to give everyone an idea of the riskiness of the portfolio at the moment, last week it was 13.82%. If everything got stopped out this week or as of Friday night, it's 11.97%. So it's down a little bit, probably as stops have narrowed slightly. Now, Rob, you set me a little bit of a challenge this week because um, what people don't know is that we kind of exchange a day or so before we go on air. We exchange a couple of ideas what we should talk about. And before we go to the questions we have from Alfred, Ricardo, Michael, and James, I wanted to bring up one of the points that you mentioned, which kind of threw me a little bit of a curveball here because suddenly I see Tesla Q1 earnings. What's going on there, Rob? What are we? And, and by the way, I'll be the first to admit that I don't know how much I can contribute to this, but I'll do my best. Yeah, it's been an interesting few weeks for me, actually. So one thing I forgot to mention at the top of the program is I actually got vaccinated last week, so that was exciting. And the other exciting event in our lives is that yesterday we, we bought for the first time an electric car. Now, it's not a Tesla, and uh, my, my feelings on Teslas are similar to my feelings about Apple Macs. I think they're overpriced. I think there's a bit of a cult thing about them. There's a bit of a fashion thing about them, which, you know, I don't really buy into. Although I suppose one advantage of an Apple Mac is that, you know, there's no danger perhaps of killing yourself if, you know, move into the passenger seat and let the thing drive itself into a tree, as happened quite recently and tragically. So, yeah, so, but I, one thing I try and do is put aside my personal feelings about things when I'm thinking about investments. It's like crypto. I don't like the idea of crypto. I don't like the idea of Bitcoin. And Moritz and I, of course, have had our debates on that over the you know recent times on on the podcast. But I've said before that that you know if I had the possibility in my portfolio to access Bitcoin futures, I'd happily trade them like I, I trade anything else. Because at the end of the day, it's just a, a tradable product with with some price. So with that in mind, I'm trying to approach Tesla as an investment case and putting aside my feelings about the product, which you know are quite negative, to be honest, because I think it's important to try and split those two things out. And that, that's one of the things that, as systematic investors and traders, I think we should do. I think we should put aside our personal feelings and emotions and, and focus on the things we can quantify. So the, the Tesla earnings for Q1 came out, and Tesla was an unprofitable company until quite recently, and, and we talked about this last year, actually, because they, they got admitted to the S&P 500 index, you know, very high up. And normally, companies float up from the bottom of indices, you know, join at the bottom and float up. But Tesla was a very large company, but not a profitable one. And to get into the S&P 500 index, you did need to show a, a, some record of profitability that they didn't have. So they managed the last 
in a few quarters, they've managed to eke out quite small profits. And, you know, if you look at something like their price earnings ratio, it's still completely insane. So I think their, their bottom line sort of headline profit was just under $600 million, which for a company with a valuation like they have is, you know, not a great number, but anyway. But one interesting, there was a couple of interesting things in that. One was that nearly 600 million, sorry, just over 500 million of that. So 80% of that was due to receiving regulatory credit. So basically being paid by the, the US government, and mainly, I suppose, to actually to develop these vehicles. So, you know, everyone talks about the US as the, the home of raw private sector capitalism. And yet here we have one of their biggest companies that that without this kind of government, direct government support wouldn't actually be making any money at all. But there's a far more interesting thing in there, actually, which and to this ties into my other kind of pet hate of Bitcoin. And that is that Tesla booked about $100 million, I think it was in profits from this from the sale of Bitcoin. So as you know, they decided to diversify their their cash holdings into Bitcoin, you know, not, not that long ago. And so they bought some Bitcoin and, uh, you know, they have the, has this, this great business model where they make cars, but their main business really ought to be something like buying Bitcoin and then getting Elon Musk to say, Bitcoin is great. Bitcoin then rallies and they sell it and they can book a profit. So th- this is actually a, probably a much easier way of, of making money than, you know, than, than making cars because you don't need factories and stuff like that. You just need Elon Musk, a Twitter account and, and somewhere to, to, to stash your Bitcoin. But the accounting treatment of, of Bitcoin is, is quite interesting because what they've actually done is quite conservative, actually, accounting treatment, which is perhaps surprising given that Tesla's a company that's often sell quite close to the edge in terms of accounting and regulatory, you know, uh, tricks before, shall we say. But actually, the way that they they booked this profit is not actually a mark-to-mark profit. They've, they've actually made actually an even bigger profit on their Bitcoin they're holding. This $100 million is just the realized profit on the stuff they've actually sold. But you know why that is? And that is because yeah. US law actually stipulates that you have to realize it before you can book it. So unsurprisingly, as you said, they got 500 million from the government and and maybe they needed another 100. So that's how they got it. Yeah, exactly. So they've got this, as long as the uh, the price of Bitcoin keeps going up, Tesla has got this wonderful way now of ensuring their earnings just have very predictable and smooth path. And, uh, you know, for me, it's interesting because, you know, thinking back 20 odd years to Enron, I'm not going to draw any direct comparisons between the two businesses. I don't want to get sued or get into a Twitter war with with Mr. Musk or anything like that. But it does strike me that one of the the, the kind of things that made Enron carry on working for a long time was that the stock price kept rising. This trick that Tesla's got will keep working as long as the price of Bitcoin keeps rising. And perhaps as long as people listen to Elon Musk when he tweets and say, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin is great, that will keep happening. But yeah, it's very interesting. And it feeds back into a more general problem, which is when you're doing any kind of quantitative financial analysis, you know, you can't just take the kind of earnings for a company off Bloomberg and say, well, these are the earnings. I'm going to calculate a price earnings ratio. You know, maybe that was something you could do 30, 40 years ago. But nowadays, you know, there's earnings, there's operating earnings, there's EBIT, there's all kinds of funny stuff going into earnings, which, you know, may or may not be genuinely part of a, a business model that's profitable. I mean, really to actually now calculate a target price for Tesla, you're going to have to model the price of Bitcoin as well. So uh, what's described as a funky company that's getting funkier, I think, in terms of the accounting and the earnings that, that are going into that. Well, you talk about modeling the price of uh, Tesla. And I, I when I saw your when I saw your headline in terms of topic, I actually thought you were going to go into another thing that involves Tesla, actually. And that is, I haven't really, I have seen it briefly. But essentially, an analyst by the name of Dale Winton 
I think, or at least that's what my note says here. It could be another, maybe he's called Brad Winton, I'm not sure. Dale Winton sounds like an English comedian. He's an English TV star. Yeah, it's probably not Dale then, let's call him Brad. But anyway, he works for ARK Investments. We know, of course, ARK has a large holding in, in Tesla and other interesting companies. Anyways... So they come out with their prediction of of the future price of Tesla. And the report says that the new price target, I think, should be something like 7,000. I think <laughs> something like that. And and this prompted uh, kind of a, a an old school value investor called Chris Bloomstrand mm-hmm. to take to Twitter. I don't think he's an unknown character. He was unknown to me, but he seems like a pretty pretty uh, thorough guy when it comes to uh, these things and certainly someone who's been in the industry you know for quite a while so he took to twitter and just asked arc of some s- kind of simple questions in terms of how they got to these numbers and and how they're going to back those up which was was quite an interesting exchange then Chris went on to one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Grant Williams podcast. And I was just walking my dog yesterday, listening to this conversation at the time, not knowing that you're going to bring up Tesla. And some of the things that he said, I'm just quoting from the conversation where he says, Tesla is the epitome of this suspension of valuation, the suspensions of reason. And I think that kind of ties up pretty well with how you described it. And let me see if I can find a few notes that I made just because I knew you were going to bring this up. I had to study a little bit. He says also another quote. Actually, this is from Grant. Grant at some point says that Tesla fans think that Tesla is a phenomenal company, but by use this, but but they use the share price to justify that they won't listen to reports that, for example, Porsche has a better new electric car and the new model EQS from Mercedes might be the one that kills off the Model S. So again, very much like I tried to describe in the beginning of our conversation that it just seems to be we've lost common sense and reason to some extent. And and then in their conversation, which unfortunately is behind a paywall now, but they talk about how, you know, by late 2020, the market cap of Tesla had peaked at around a trillion based on a $31 billion uh, revenue in 2020, which is, you know, seems quite uh, lofty to, to say the least. Also, as you were saying, that in order to get into the S&P, Chris is saying here that they had to engineer the stock into the S&P, which required a lot of accounting, gymnastics, and even business fundamental operation decisions making to make it appear as though the company was profitable for four quarters. And that would be cutting in dollar terms, not even, and I think it's CapEx, he's talking about they're cutting CapEx, not even in relative to sales, but cutting R&D and cutting CapEx. So anyways, I mean, I'm not going to try and get in closer or deeper into this. It's not really my forte, but there is a lot of talk about it. And for me, it's really, just, I don't really care about Tesla or Elon Musk or, or anything like that. It's For me, it's not that. It's just what's going on in the markets. And the people, as I said in the beginning, the people start thinking that this is normal. And for me, that's the real risk, that we start thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, that's okay. Because it reminds me so much of what happened during the dot-com bubble, yeah. that we started thinking about, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. The company doesn't make any money. It's losing money every quarter. It doesn't matter. You don't need earnings anymore. And then suddenly one day we realize, oh dear, we you do need earnings, right? Yeah. And it just smells this, exactly the it's, same, even it's, though... 
it's very strange because actually a value has has made a bit of a comeback recently, right? I mean, you, you forwarded me a piece yesterday um, about AQR, which is very interesting. And, um, you know, Cliff Asser is saying, you know, value has had a terrible time, but, but it looks like we're on the way back. But having said that, valuations are still incredible. I mean, you could still pick up value stocks at an, you know, absolutely ridiculously cheap prices. I mean, Last year, one thing I did after the market crash, we discussed this at the time, I think I put a lot of money into cash. And then one of the things I did with that money subsequently was during the summer of last year was to buy a lot of UK stocks that I thought were very undervalued using my, you know, my systematic screen. And that that portfolio is up something like 75%, you know, so that's, I mean, obviously, I'm going to attribute the whole of that to my skill as a stock picker. But uh, actually, a lot of it is due to the fact that, that value has gone from being shockingly underpriced just just marginally underpriced and i think actually the weird thing is i look at the value stocks and they're not like super super cheap it's not like you can buy good companies with p ratios of four or something like that it's just that they they look cheap compared to the absolute insanity going on at the kind of tesla end of the market and it, it does feel like there's not like a general insanity going on there's there's, there's an insanity going on in, in one part of the market and the, all these things i think are linked i think you know gamestop tesla you know crypto nfts these are all linked they're they're all all similar kinds of people who are buying these things who are buying into the stories of these things i think a lot of it is retail and quite naive retail investors who've received stimulus checks or whatever or i've just got a lot of savings after a year in which they've not been able to spend any money because they've not gone to restaurants or things like that and they've got this excess liquidity and they've gone well what am i going to do with it well i'm going to use it to do things and invest in things that I, i think are fun and interesting and topical you know they're not interested in buying a utility company on a, a PE of 12. That doesn't excite them at all. They want to buy something that's trendy and exciting and also volatile because they can see the opportunity there for a, you know, a very large return, a very large up, potential upside. You know, They don't want to buy a, a boring utility company that, that you know, may go up 20% in a year, which to me is an excellent return. But you know, to someone who's used to the, the kind of Tesla world of insane valuations, it's rather pedestrian. And so you've got those guys and then you've got maybe some institutions that are trying to piggyback off these trends. And then you've got large portions of the market people like you and me shaking their heads and going, well, this is crazy. And I'm so glad I'm not an institute, you know, like a, an institutional stock picker now, because you you have your clients saying, well, you're being left behind because I wouldn't be able to buy these things. They're saying you're being left behind. You know, why aren't you in on the trend? And, and uh, of course, I expect one day I'll be proven right and these valuations will collapse. But as we both know, bubbles can go on for a very long time. And I'm, I'm not going to try and predict the end of this one. It, I'm just going to shake my head with my old man voice and say, you know, Things are getting things are going completely insane, and every week they get more insane. And when will it end? I've no idea. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, of course, great points, and and to a large extent, I I agree with that. I kind of struggle and wrestle a little bit inside my own mind about you know that some of the things that I might feel is crazy looking may not just because of changes in the world, so to speak. Let's call it that. May not be as insane as I think they might be, right? That some of this is here to stay, potentially, right? And so so I'm preparing myself to be surprised as well. But I also think that some of the things, and hopefully the people who listen to us every week will agree that, and of course, Morris and, and, and Jerry, they have Bitcoin in their portfolio and they say exactly like you said earlier, there's no problem in trading it from a trend-following point of view. You don't need to be a believer. You don't need to believe in anything to be a trend-follower per se, other than that, that there will be trends. So in that sense, yeah, open-minded about things, even though some of it seems incredibly hard to accept. And the other thing that I noticed, and again, I'm not a Warren Buffett fan or, or, or you know, as such, 
But I do think it's interesting to see that he is so much on the sideline again, like he was in the last two or three years of the tech bubble. And of course, at some point you might say, well, I mean, at least he's got Apple and he's got a huge holding in Apple. So it's not like he's not in, in, in the growth side of things, but, but it's just interesting. And maybe it's time for maybe the, the old school, so to speak, we and people older than us will be proven wrong this time. I don't know. I don't think we will. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, we disclose our returns in our trend-following portfolios every every week. And as people know by now, it makes no difference to what we think or what we feel in terms of the profits or losses that we generate uh, on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And again, that's actually what I like about what we do is that we can have our opinion, but if we're totally wrong, they're not going to cost us a fortune. Of course, if we're totally right, we're not going to make a fortune, but we have our trend-following portfolios and, and they'll be just fine for the most part. On top of that, you know, diversification is something I think we all believe in, so there's nothing wrong with having other things in the portfolio, though Jerry might say, well, hang on, you need 100% of your money in trend-following and that's fine. But I think most people will say trend following is probably only part of what I do like you do. And with your success in stock picking, Rob, I feel the next <laughs> book coming along already. I can see the headline, My Life as a Stock Picker. <laughs> it might be a short one this time, but there we are. Speaking of stocks, we have a question in. This time it came in from Matt and he used uh, the voicemail, which we don't get a lot of. And actually, to be perfectly honest, it's a little bit easier when people just send them by email. But nevertheless, uh, let's hear what Matt had in terms of question. Hey guys, thank you so much for fielding my question. It's Matt here from the UK. Thanks so much for all of the podcasts. It's been um, it's been fascinating listening to them all. I've heard in a few podcasts recently, Joey Parker talking about how he prefers single. Uh, equities like to trend follow stocks that he puts in his tracking portfolio and and will keep those being traded pretty much ad infinitum and he can take them away but obviously never put them back in because you want to basically be in it all the time taking every trade so that you do catch those outlier situations and my question was actually about stock selection so obviously if you're normally looking at picking a stock you're looking for something which has a bullish or a bearish outlook maybe you're looking for a breakout volume but obviously if you're selecting a stock which you want to trade ad infinitum then you're not just looking to go long you're looking for, for it to have properties to be able to swing uh, in long-term trends both up and down presumably one of those aspects is liquidity but i just wondered if you guys could potentially shed any light on other characteristics that you would look for in selecting stocks to trade um, and to add to your sort of tracking portfolio for the long term with the sort of idea to basically trend follow these stocks for the foreseeable future. I really appreciate um, your time and listening to this and thank you for getting back to me. Have a successful 2021. Okay, so what Matt is asking about is as a trend follower, if you want to trade stocks, what criteria do you look for? What are the things you look for to select these stocks other than, of course, that you want them to be liquid? So I don't trade single stocks. So, Rob, what are you looking for? 
I don't. Well, I do trade single stocks, although I do so only in the UK. And so my my, fil- my filter, and that's just to keep my tax situation simpler, basically. So my filter is, for me personally, in this part of my portfolio, is it a UK listed stock? I do have a minimum threshold for market cap, which is also, I guess, a, a sort of liquidity, effectively a liquidity threshold as well. And then, yes, I'm choosing the stocks based based on some valuation metrics. And then, you know, I, I basically risk manage them with a, a simple stop loss system. So it's, it's fairly basic. But actually, this is a wider question really than just stocks. It, it's like, you know, when you're adding instruments to your portfolio, what, what things do you consider? And actually, I, I can tell you that this is very topical for me personally, because one of the things I'm doing at the moment is looking at adding a lot of futures to my portfolio. So I've got about 39 futures in my portfolio at the moment, but I'm I've d- d- experimenting with a, a way of trading a lot more futures, even with the limited capital I have by using some selection criteria. But th- it means that my universe of futures will potentially be much wider. So, so you know, obviously there are things like, for example, logistical things like, do I have to pay a lot of money for the price feed? So, you know, it's, for example, as an individual investor, I, I think to for me to get the price of, say, Canadian futures is something like, you know, 100 Canadian dollars a month, you know, to access perhaps one or two futures contracts, that, that doesn't make any sense. And where, you know, because I can pay $10-$15 a month and basically get prices for everything on you know all the Chicago exchanges and that that covers such a huge variety of futures contracts that, that you know there's it it's, doesn't make any sense to me to then spend a lot of money getting data for other things uh, like say ICE is quite expensive as well in terms of data in an ideal world there are quite a few contracts on ICE I would like to trade because there's a lot of UK contracts there but you know that the data costs don't make any sense single stocks that's probably less of an issue because you know single stock data you know you can get a license to get say all US level one data from all exchanges you know pretty pretty cheaply then the next thing of course is is to think about exactly as he says the thing about liquidity and uh, I think we need to actually separate out two things here which are confused which is liquidity and costs because they're not they're related, but they're not quite the same thing. So, so for me, that the the and this is the point I actually got to yesterday with doing this exercise. I've I've got now a list of something like three hundred and fifty potential contracts I could add to my portfolio, which just goes to show you the astonishing range that there is out there. And it, you know, and I've ordered them just initially very crudely by a number of contracts traded in the last week. And at the top, there's some you know big contracts that I I don't currently trade. And then right at the bottom. We're getting into the what I call the world of Moritz. So you've got milk, you've got cheese, you know, you've got all kinds of tiny things in there. Which and butter, you've got butter as well. Butter is down there. So all the thi- I call these are the things you'd call you know the futures contracts, things you'd keep in your fridge. But anyway, there's there's probably some cutoff there. And I could do a more sophisticated thing, which is say, well, probably what I would do is say in terms of risk, you know, ri- normalized by risk, where you know what I sort these things normalized by risk because obviously that will give me a different pattern. Uh, but there is some point at which something is just too small to trade. It's just going to be, you're not going to be able to, to trade it in any meaningful size. And it, it's not worth it um, because, the mar- as we've discussed before, diversification is great, but it's a marginally reducing thing. So beyond some point, you, you know, diversification becomes yeah. less of an issue. But you only need end-of-day data, right? Yes, but but I'm, because I'm trading, you, you're using my own execution algorithm. I actually need intraday data for the actual trading. So Ah, okay. So, yeah. Interesting. And so then, so that's so liquidity, some measure of liquidity. And if I was an institutional investor, what I'd be looking at saying is something like, well, I don't want to be ever more than, say, half a percent or 1% of the daily volume. So you could calculate what you typically be trading with your system and then look at the volumes in terms of numbers of contracts. And then from that, say, well, this is my cutoff 
you know, I don't want to go below that. And even as a retail trader, you know, if something's really thinly traded, you don't want to be ever be in a situation where even your modest position of two or three contracts that you're holding is going to be difficult for you to cut quickly if something dramatic happens. So so that liquidity is, is important, as you say. Then there's costs. And as I said, they're not quite the same thing. And But I would personally avoid trading anything where the risk-adjusted costs are too high. To an extent, I can massage my system parameters and trade things more slowly if they're more expensive. So if we take, say, you know, well, in, in stocks, it would be something like a small cap stock, perhaps, that's liquid enough to trade, but it's still a bit expensive because the bid offer spread is, is quite wide. Well, maybe you can trade that more slowly. But at some point you say, well, there's some upper limit maybe for w- at which point you're, you're not really trading this thing anymore. You're effectively, you've become an investor. So so that would equate to then some mi- maximum level of costs, that risk-adjusted costs that you would cope with. And the other thing, and again, this is both relates to stocks, but also to the the decisions I'm making at the moment with my futures portfolio, is is diversification. So trying to add new things in there. So so for example, you know, I don't have crypto. So potentially, if that's something I with this new system I have that enables me to make better use of my limited capital, I would potentially be trading, you know, one of the crypto futures. One thing I found interesting when doing this exercise is a lot of futures that I I didn't realize existed. So for example, in both Europe and the US, there are sector, stock sector futures. So you can buy like, you know, healthcare. US yeah. healthcare or technology and things like that. And something like, for example, the Eurostocks banks future is actually incredibly liquid. So so uh, that that's a whole sector of uh, asset class effectively I, I i could add that'd be quite interesting because there's potential to do things with those kinds of futures like for example some relative value model that would be you know potentially quite interesting and there's also in the us sadly they're not very liquid most of them but there are housing index futures the national one is reasonably liquid then there are ones for individual cities that, that don't seem to be trading very much there's also some interest rate swap uh, futures, which is a diversification in, in a fixed income sense. And then, of course, there's, there's you know, the, the milk and the cheese and those kinds of things and uranium and, you know, and, and rough rice and hard wheat. And, you know, the, there's an almost unlimited number of, of physical commodities you can trade. So, you know, there wouldn't be much value in me saying, adding, for example, say the Dow Jones future, which I don't currently trade. Well, I trade the S&P and I trade the NASDAQ. The Dow Jones isn't going to be a priority for me to add. But something like, I don't know, Lumber, and Lumber's actually been on Twitter quite recently as being a, something that's, that's going up insanely in price. Something like Lumber would, would be a lot more diversifying. Something like Bitcoin, I hate to say, would be a lot more diversifying than, than adding just another US equity future. So for me, it comes down to those three things, liquidity, costs, and diversification. And that, that decision process, I would apply with anything I was doing, whether it was adding single stocks, or whether it's futures or ETFs, the same principles apply. Lumber is up 92% so far this year. Yeah, so imagine. Imagine being long. Uh, the next thing you're going to tell us, Rob, is that you have decided to move to China to get into the, all the Chinese domestic futures. So, you know, watch this space, right? Let's stay in terms of markets because we did have another question coming in. Alfred writes, to what extent do you think the recent rally in soybeans is due to the fact that soybeans are in backwardation? I believe sugar and corn are also in backwardation. There is a good paper by Hilary Till on the topic, but she does not answer the question directly. Does backwardation lead to price rallies? I forwarded to you actually just a list of markets that were in backwardations and those that are in contango. And of course, for people who 
may not remember, I'm always scared I get this wrong, but contango is when the price in the future is higher than the current price, and uh, backwardation is when the price today is higher than the future price. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Rob. I have to be honest with you, I had to Google that as well, because I always get that wrong as well. (laughs) It's a bit terrifying, isn't it, that supposedly two of the most experienced futures <laughs> traders on the planet and we can't remember what backwardation and contango mean but yeah yes luckily there is but google just, just not terms i use a lot yes exactly and luckily we don't actually have that in as a parameter in our model so we don't really need to worry about it but the question came up so things that are in contango at the moment are things like cocoa coffee cotton copper gold palladium platinum silver we have wheat we have blend stock gas, which I don't trade. You don't trade, I think, maybe. Natural gas. We have Australian dollar, British pounds, Canadian dollar. And we have the euro, the yen, the Swiss franc. Those are all in contango. And then in backwardation, we have a lot of the we have the interest rates. We have equity markets. We have actually corn and soybeans and also sugar and crude oil. So... I don't know if you know the answer to this question, Rob. Is this something you've ever looked into and do you have an opinion about it? So this is effectively carry. Because carry says, if everything stays the same, what money will you earn or lose? So if the futures curve remains the same shape, in other words, if in backwardation, that means it's effectively downward sloping into the future. That means that futures, as they, as they mature and get closer to their expiry date, will roll up that curve and they will earn profits from that rolling up. So this is a signal I do use, although I don't use it in the sense of spot versus future. I will look at two adjacent futures contracts. So that will that's potentially more accurate, assuming you are not, unless you're trading the first contract, of course, in which case you, have, you should really be comparing it to spot. So if we take something like the VIX, for example, because that's a term structure that, that I know that you look at as well. If you look at the, what you would do then is say, let's say you're holding the second contract. So we, we're on monthly expiries. So that would be now, that would be June. You would compare the June and the May contracts and you would look at that slope. And if that was backwardated, that means you expect the price of June to rise as it ages and becomes effectively the, the May contract. So that is a Correct. signal that I do actually use, a carry signal. And it's quite a big part of my model. It's something like 20 to 30%. And a lot of research has been done on carry, this classic paper by uh, the, some guy, AQR guys, and they looked across lots of asset classes. And But in futures, they used this contango backwardation measure as their measure of carry, and they found it to be very profitable. So it does work, but it, and it works in two, feeds in in two ways. So you can use it explicitly as a carry signal. But the other thing is, if you think about the adjusted price of a future, the price series, when you stitch together your futures contracts with you know and done your with your Panama method or whatever you've done your back adjustment, and I appreciate I'm now using terms that other people may have to Google, but but I don't have to explain them. And quite a, most people listening to this probably know what I'm talking about. If you imagine a, a commodity where the the spot price remains unchanged, but where there is a backwardation in the curve, the back adjusted price will show a constant upwards trend. So actually, you'll pick it up through your your trend following, assuming that your your moving averages or whatever or your your breakouts or whatever, are looking at the back-adjusted price series because that's effectively a total return series, which means it includes this component of backwardation or contango. So in a very roundabout way, I guess I'm saying yes in that if a commodity is in backwardation, generally speaking, I would expect it to go up over time if the spot price remains unchanged. But of course, movements in the spot price will add a, you know, an extra effect to that. And of course, these things change. So actually, I noticed quite recently because uh, I was having a discussion with Twitter of somebody saying, oh, 
my portfolio is full of longs. Why do I have no shorts? And and I, I, I said, well, I'm short a few things. And one of them was lean hogs. And this guy was like, well, look at the trend for lean hogs. How come you're short? And I, I said, well, it's because of carry. And I looked closely at the the curve and I thought, well, hang on a second. Why am I short this thing in carry? Because this thing's actually um, in backwardation. So I should be long through carry. And then I, I panicked and thought, oh my God, there's a bug in my code because I've been refactoring all my code and stuff. I put a minus sign in or something. And then I had a close look and I noticed that what's happened is that the, the curve has recently flipped. So it wasn't contango until about five or six days ago. And then it flipped into backwardation. I was just looking at the last most recent series. But because my measure of carry is as smooth of the, carry, of the contango and backwardation, because otherwise it's very noisy and generates too many trading costs, because it was a smooth, my carry signal hadn't quite picked up on this flipping sign yet, and I was still short. So that was the explanation for that position. And so the good news is my code is fine. Everything is okay. So yeah, I think, I know some people think you should just trade with pure trend following and not look at this at all. To some extent, that means you will still pick up the effects of contango and backwardation because they'll feed into this total return series, this back-adjusted price series, particularly with your slower moving averages or your slower breakouts or whatever you're using. But I, I you know, it does add quite a lot of value to the system, although, of course, it makes it less pure trend following, makes it a you know, less positive skew, does all those things that, that Moritz and Jerry hate so much, but I'm a bit more relaxed about. But, but yeah. No, that's a great that's a great explanation, Rob. I appreciate that, and thanks very much, Alfred, for your question. I'm sure a lot of people learned a few things here. Now, after my initial shock yesterday of seeing Tesla Q1 earnings on our <laughs> discussion sheet, I read down a little bit further, and another topic came up, and I think and I thought, oh my God, I have to read up on this as well. So the headline you wrote was the Gamma Hammer. So I've done a little bit of reading, but the link you sent me, unfortunately, was to the FT, which since I'm not a subscriber of the FT, I couldn't read the article. I think I know what it's about, but maybe you need to give me a little bit of context here and, of course, our listeners as well. So there's a fund manager called Parametric, which is a, it's a great name for a quantitative hedge fund, by the way. I wish I'd thought of it first. But so ba- basically, what they've been doing is selling options contracts. So that they've effectively been selling. And if, if you're familiar with options terminology, they've been selling effectively quite narrow strangles. So options that are about 10% in and out, out of the money and in on either side. So as most people know, I guess, th- this is a, a great strategy in that you will earn steady profits, assuming that prices don't move too much. Over very long time periods, it, it tends to be a positive sharp ratio strategy because you are effectively earning the you know what we'd call in technical terms the variance premium. So it's not that dissimilar from doing something like say shorting the VIX contract, for example, it gives you a similar kind of return profile. Now the downside, of course, is that when things go wrong, you're going to lose a lot of money very quickly. So you have this classic kind of negative skew account curve where you make steady profits and then you have a sharp loss and then you make steady profits. So it's something certainly for the for, not for the faint of hearts, but you know it, it's not it's not a huge surprise that that this strategy exists that people do it. But I guess what is surprising is the size that these guys are doing. You know that and that hence the nickname. I mean, people love giving traders nicknames. So you know, we, we, do you remember Fifty Cent was another vol trader uh, a, a yes. couple of years ago? Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, there was the London Whale, which was the Mr. Ixel who lost a lot of money trading CDSs, you know, like about 10 years ago now, I guess. So people love giving these people nicknames. So they've called this guy, these guys, the Gamma Hammer because they're just doing this thing in absolutely huge size. So they're basically making a bet that that you and I are wrong, Moritz, and that the market is going to continue in this lovely fairyland where 
everything's stable and, and Vol stays low and wonderful and, and joyful and it, it's all going to be uh, lovely and, and fine and, and fantastic. Now, you could take the sort of very sanguine view that, you know, well, the so what? I, I, I don't invest in this fund. I'm not running this fund. It doesn't affect me at all. But of course it does, because what's going to happen is if the markets do start to sell off, then the, the bank or whoever it is that has, has bought these options off these guys is going to be hedging their exposure, delta hedging their exposure. And the effect of that is that the any sell-off is going to be increased, is going to be a feedback loop effectively, because they're, as the exposure of these guys gets bigger, as the delta gets bigger, they're going to have to be selling more and more to protect themselves. And that will, you know, accentuate the thing. So it's basically what happened with GameStop a lot of people bought call options to squeeze the shorts because of the non-linear effect that when they bought these call options, as the price went up, the banks had to hedge and they had to buy. And therefore, you know, things got ugly very quickly if you were a short in that stock. This is a similar kind of thing, but it's across the whole market because this, you know, these are, these guys are doing this thing mainly in the S&P. Um, and the size, you know, I mean, games, it's going to make GameStop look like a walk in a park if, if things go wrong. So, so yeah, it, it's you could take the view that this is not, not a problem for everybody, but actually I think it potentially could make a, a sell-off a bit scarier when and if it happens. Yeah, I, a couple of interesting observations about that on top of what you've already said. One is I found it quite interesting that this wonderfully named fund manager, Paramedic, taking these huge risky bets is owned by no other than Morgan Stanley. I just thought that's quite interesting because generally a lot of these banks are so risk averse, certainly towards their clients in terms of what we have to do to please them. And then they have apparently ownership of the Gamma Hammer themselves. That could make for some interesting headlines at some point. From what I read or could read, the trade size is worth roughly 5 billion in notional exposure each week. I think they do this like rolling weekly type strangles that they're selling. And as you rightly said, you know, this strategy will get completely smoked if there is a big move because what effectively they're doing is they're collecting pennies in front of a steamroller. And we've seen other examples of this, right? We know the short vol strategy was so popular in particular in 2017, right? Volatility moved down every week, every day, every month. It was just wonderful. And people actually, and there was this fund at the time called XIV that became huge because of its return and steady as you go. But there were people who voiced, and I remember people like Mike Green and also I think Chris Cole had a panel discussion with the where the CEO or the CIO of, of this XIV fund was there and where they said, you know, and this was only like a few months before Volmageddon in February of 2018, where, of course, this fund went belly up and lost all of its money in pretty much one day. They had told him that this strategy is, this is going to blow up on you and where they were obviously fiercely disputed from these people. So, unfortunately, I see a lot of similarities in what we're talking about with the Gamma Hammer and what we started today's conversation about. To me, it seems like we oh, there are parts of the financial system that has completely lost common sense. And uh, those of us who try to do things where we try to minimize actually the risk, I think a lot of people forget that trend following to a large extent is really risk management first and foremost. And then we don't really worry about the returns because we can't control them. And this is probably why, you know, there are a few firms, including the one I work for, that's been around for 
almost 50 years. And that is because we don't do things like the Gamma Hammer and stuff like that. So I think it's symptomatic of the times we're in right now and all the other things we talked about earlier. But I do think in an odd uh, way that this might be good news for people who do trade divergent strategies and who do trend following. Because I think at some point when the fallout comes... I think it's going to lead to massive uh, dislocation in the markets. And hopefully, once again, we can be there to help investors as the market starts to really move. Speaking of moving, we need to move on because we still got a few questions coming in from Twitter. And the first one is from Ricardo. He says, in previous episodes, Niels and Moritz expressed skepticism about using a mean reversion strategy on a single instrument because, I believe, they did not like its return profile and were more comfortable with trend following. I know you are more, and he's talking to you, Rob, I know you are more <laughs> open-minded and that you are going to write about it. Can you share your initial thoughts on the mean reversion strategy and how it could be complemented with trend following? If there is more time for another if there's more time for another question, what are your thoughts on systematic global macro strategies and how do they compare versus trend following strategies? So that's a good question actually Ricardo clearly listened to last week's episodes where Mark and I talked about it, but I would also love your thoughts about that. So the floor is yours, Rob. Yeah, so the mean reversion for me, I, I guess what made I, this is an idea that, that sort of floated around for a while now. But what made me really think about it was I was preparing some slides for the, this course I teach at University of London, and I, I showed them a nice picture, which was the return profile of basically a moving average crossover strategy, varying the two moving averages essentially. And the main message I was trying to get actually was a, about the importance of having a robust system and this kind of stuff. But one thing I noticed that was really interesting was that it was a very consistent pattern in that the most profitable type of strategy generally was something like medium speed trend following. So this is no surprise. And, you know, the, the sweet spot varied depending on the instrument. But, you know, with a holding period of anywhere between two weeks and, say, a year, trends seem to be to work pretty well in, in most financial assets. But the other thing that stood out for me was there was this weird Block, sort of blotch in the, the top left of the chart. And that was a blotch. And that was where effectively you had very fast, for us at least, you know, I'm not talking about microseconds here, but very, quite fast trading, in quite fast trading, momentum was not working at all. And in fact, mean reversion was working. So we're looking at a holding period here of perhaps a few days. And the interesting thing about it is that this pattern was very consistent and it appeared on every single instrument I looked at pretty much. So it wasn't like, it was just a weird fluke of one instrument. It was really significantly there. And and I, I kind of have this almost philosophical belief that markets behave differently at different time frames, and the behavior tends to flip-flop. So, for example, it's if you're going to do something like the stock value strategy that we've talked about, you need to be incredibly patient. You need to be, you know, Cliff Asnes and whoever, and, and you need to have the ability to hold things for years and years because it takes a long time for these valuation cycles to move. So the value, that's effectively a mean reversion strategy that plays out over a multiple year time frame. As I just said, between something like two weeks and a year, momentum seems to work pretty well. If I zoom down to, say, one day time frames, actually, momentum seems to work pretty well there as well. Then in this, this in-between area of where the holding period is between a day and perhaps a week, roughly, depending on the instrument where mean reversion seems to be 
the most profitable strategy. Now, you're right, the return profile isn't as nice because, of course, it's not a divergent strategy like trend following mean reversion is a convergent strategy. So like selling vol, you know, you're going to have negative skew, although it won't be anywhere as bad as a short vol strategy would be. But it certainly doesn't have the nice risk properties. And you've got to do more work with the risk management. So if if you're a trend follower, you don't have to worry about, about, say, you know, what you do when you start losing money. If you're losing money, that means the market's been trending against you. You'd be closing your position anyway either with a stop loss or, you know, using the actual trend signal itself with the way that my system works. If you're trading mean reversion, you've actually got to think a bit more carefully because you've got this this weird thing happening where the market's selling off, you want to buy, the market sells off some more. Well, the trend following strategy would be like, well, I've got this wrong, I'm going to get out of this position. The mean reversion strategy's natural instinct is to buy more and try and catch, you know, the falling knife. So you do need to have an experience more explicit kind of risk management or stop loss of some mechanism where you say eventually at some point you know what i'm going to get out of this position this the loss is too big the market's clearly dislocated and then you and, and you don't and then you need to have some kind of mechanism for getting back into it so some way of identifying when the market started to behave more nicely and mean revert more nicely so there's a bit more complexity there that you have to build in there's a couple of advantages though which i'll just quickly mention before you jump in and obviously do your job of criticising the mean reversion strategy. One, one advantage, obviously, is uncorrelated with trend following. The, the correlation is going to be you know, quite strongly negative, which is obviously good because you've got the diversification properties there. And from an intuitive perspective, what tends to be happening is that there, obviously when the market's trending, that's great. Your mean reversion strategy is going to lose a bit of money, but you'll make, hopefully make more money from trend following. When the market's just horrible for trend following and just moving around, your mean reversion strategy is going to be doing really well. So that's the first advantage. The second advantage is in terms of trading costs. Because you can um, effectively set points at which you'll be buying or selling and you're waiting for the market to come to you, you can do that with limit orders. So that means every time you trade, you're actually going to be earning effectively half the spread. So your trading costs can, can be, will be much cheaper than a, than a trend-following strategy where, well, you, you know, the worst-case scenario is you put in a market order and always pay half the spread. Uh, sometimes you can do a bit better by being a bit smarter with your execution. But generally speaking, it's going to be cheaper the actual training costs are going to be cheaper for this mean reversion type strategy. So that that's the bull case for mean reversion, uh, Moritz. I'm, I'm quite happy are to hear keep, the bear case. You keep calling me Moritz today. I know, uh, I know. It's instinctive. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's instinctive. Yeah. But besides that, I'm going to surprise you here, Rob, because I wasn't going to criticize it. I was actually going to suggest something to you in your thinking as well. And that is, I do think that... It, the term mean reversion, it is also dependent on how you think about it, right? So if you think about it as a kind of a short-term trend-following strategy that just does have other properties of getting in, you can actually overcome some of the challenges, right? Where you say, I'm not just going to buy blindly when the markets fall. I'm actually going to somehow identify that the market is in a downtrend, first of all. You can do that with simple filtering. And then when it makes a small breakout to the upside, then that's my entry point. And therefore, you can also have a stop loss, right? So I do think that you can certainly engineer your mean reverting in nature type model to overcome some of the challenges of where you just blindly, as you say, keep loading up because the market is going down or vice versa. You keep selling as the market goes up. And I say that from experience because that's some of the things that I dealt with many years ago where we did that. So it's certainly doable where you just simply define the market regime or environment or whatever you would call it before you start applying your shorter term, I would call them trend following model, but they, you know, that's just because that's how I think about them. 
Yeah, there are, diff- there are different ways of blending trend following and mean reversion, and they probably end up with similar behaviour. But, you know, for example, one thing you can do that's quite popular, actually, amongst discretionary traders is to identify what the long-term trend is and then trade mean reversion around that. And what that means is you never go against the long-term trend. So if the long-term trend, say, is upwards, you would only ever be long. Yeah. But what you're looking to do is buy when the market dips below that trend, basically on a pullback, and then sell when the market goes above that trend. So you never take a short position. You're just effectively trading around a long position, trying to buy and sell when the markets move temporarily away from that trend. So, so you know, that's a, a nice way of trading both trend following and mean reversion. It wouldn't suit my style of model because I like to have, you know, my trend following model here, my mean reversion model here, and then some kind of combination of them. The other thing is that the way I would probably implement this from an execution perspective is as a separate strategy because, it you know, right. one model is going to be submitting orders basically with a style of saying, well, I'm... I want to buy today based on like yesterday's end of day price. This is the normal trend following model. I don't mind when I buy today. I want to buy at the best possible price, but basically I want to buy today. Whereas your mean reversion model is going to be a lot more reactive. It's going to be saying, well, I'm, I'll, I buy, but only if the price reaches this level. I will sell, but only if the price reaches this level. So the execution model is quite different. So I, you know, you, I would probably implement them separately with the way my model works. But yeah, I, I don't yeah. think it's... Uh, I think it's in the same way that, as I said earlier, you can be pure trend following or you can include some carry. I have no problem with including a, a, a little bit of mean reversion, a little bit of these convergent strategies to improve my sharp ratio. I just think it's a question of not overdoing it, not getting carried away. Yes. And it goes back to the point that at least Jerry often reminds us of is that we shouldn't be skeptical. I'm not sure he would actually describe, you know, that he meant it in this way. He was more talking about the markets, of course. If we try to suggest that he would be even open to mean reversion, I think we're going to not get far into that discussion. So, But anyways, yet another point came up today on today's talking point. This was a question from Michael, where again, I feel completely unprepared, really. So I'm glad I have you here, Rob, to set the record straight. Michael writes, might to be too specific for the show, but for someone who knows how to program, that must be you, or maybe it's himself he's talking about, audit 20 years ago, but doesn't know R or Python, how long would it take to convert a full Excel backtesting and trading system, not automated, into one of those languages? So it's not you he's talking about, Rob. How long do you think it'll take? I mean, it's one of these how long is a piece of string things, isn't it? Because you could probably code up a fairly simple backtesting system if you know, in a couple of hours, and obviously that wouldn't be automated, as he says, but it'd be enough to say test, you know, one one simple indicator without doing anything fancy. But the other end of the extreme, I, you know, I was said earlier, I was doing some coding, and so my this is my open source um, Python trading system, which anyone can download and, and look at. And I'm on, ver- I'm, I'm just about to go to version one point zero. In other words, it's just about the point where I'd say it's, you know, not finished exactly, but it's got a f- the full range of functionality that I'm happy with. And I've been working on this thing like for five years. Now, not full, of course, not five years full time. And I've written a couple of books as well in that period and, and done other things. But but yeah, you can spend an awful lot of time on these things, particularly if, if you want to go down the road of full automation. So the answer is probably somewhere between two hours and five years, and possibly even longer. It just depends on how much, you know, functionality you want or, or need to have in there. Really, there are other open source platforms out there you can borrow or take stuff from if you're comfortable with with the language. It's probably not good for a complete novice to try this, but if you're comfortable with the language, taking someone else's code and modifying it and playing with it is is potentially a good starting point. And so, for example, the you know the interface between myself and the broker is not my code; it's c- code that I've 
taken off somebody else's open source. So because you know that's to write that would take me even longer. So you know it's, that's not my speciality. I could probably write like a page of code on my blog and and write this is a complete backtesting system, and people have done it. Other people have done it, uh, but to actually you know to get the sort of functionality of a commercial package is, is going to take you several years, probably at least. Yeah, I mean, um, I completely concur with you. I, as I said, I haven't done anything like this myself, but I have worked with quite a few programmers in my career and also specifically building backtesting systems. And that's certainly also been a multi-year process to get it to where we wanted to get it to. But I'm also aware that there are some platforms out there that are starting to emerge where maybe some of the hard work uh, will be done and, and where things can be you know, helped along forward with some of the things that they've done. And that's actually something that I've been in uh, discussion with recently uh, in the last week or two with such a firm. So I do know that they exist. And of course, it's quite relevant for many people in our audience. So so watch this space potentially at least. Now, last question uh, that came in is from James. James writes, I still thoroughly enjoy the show. Many thanks for the great conversation so far this year. A question for yourself and for your guests, a relevant question. Exiting winning trades in stages. Jerry mentioned the pain of leaving profits on the table when you stop, when your stop is hit. A pain I've experienced myself just plenty. What do you think at all about easing out of trades in stages, e.g. rather than entirely exit a long position at 5 ATR decline, for example, instead you sell 50% of your contracts at 2.5 ATR decline and the other 50% at 5 ATR decline? And perhaps even smaller but climbing increments, e.g. 5% at 1 ATR, 15% at 2 ATR, etc., etc. I'm wondering if any of you have backtested this approach or otherwise, if you have a theoretical or principled perspective on it, if it would be worth trying. Again, thanks so much for the wonderful content. I also found the reading list very helpful and I'm working my way through it. Well, thanks very much, James. You're very welcome. Rob, why don't you start with this? Easing in, easing out, obviously it's something that we do, but we do it differently. So, Yeah, I mean, the, the way my main system works is is it generates a forecast, which is, you know, where it thinks the risk-adjusted return is going to go. And for trend following, that would work in the sense that as a trend gets stronger and goes on for longer, the forecast would increase, your position would increase and get bigger. When a trend starts to weaken, you would then your forecast would be getting smaller, which means your optimal position would be getting smaller, which means you would then start to be reducing your position, but it would not be all in one go. It would look very much like the kind of behaviour that James is discussing. You know, there's the trends weakening, the position is gradually being cut, and it's not until the trend is definitely over that that I'm, you know, completely out of it. Now, something that's an important distinction to make here is that behaviour is going to be different depending on the, the underlying speed of the trend following signal. So if it's a relatively fast trend following signal, obviously that getting out of the position will happen gradually. But when I say gradually, I mean over maybe three days. If it's a really slow system, it could take a couple of months to actually reduce that position from where it is to flat. And of course, for everything I'm training, I'm actually training a mixture of speeds so that the behavior is going to be somewhere in the middle of there. So you're probably talking about getting out of positions. It depends on the instrument and how fast I'm training, but, you know, a week couple of weeks maybe a month it would take to get out of a position as a trend weakens now the james is talking about it in the context of a what i would call a discrete sort of stop loss based system where you know you know you this is something i talk about in my my third book just a bit of advertising there but the idea of, of you know buying 
one unit of a position and then holding it until you hit a stop. So the, the cruder, what, what Jerry calls the caveman version of trend following. So I guess what James is talking about is a way of modifying that, that caveman version so it's a bit closer in behaviour to the way that, that my, my system works. So the words, you know, you're exiting gradually, but the exit's still being done in a stop-loss type fashion. In other words, by using ATRs rather than by looking at the actual trend itself. So I guess my answer to James's question is it, it's... I'm a bit uncomfortable with the making the, the because the caveman system is has an advantage of simplicity and that's great and that makes it very good particularly if you're trading manually you know on a part-time basis and you haven't got an automated system like I have so like my stock portfolio that we talked about earlier you know, my amazing stock portfolio I'm going to write this book about you know that's using a caveman system effectively would I consider this more complicated implementation in that stock portfolio? No, I probably wouldn't, to be honest. I think I'd probably like to keep it simple. You know, so theoretically, I think it will add value because certainly in sharp ratio terms, and this is a, a Jerry Rob debate that we've had before, but, you know, whether that's the right thing to look at, but certainly in sharp ratio terms, making the system more continuous with more gradual entries and exits will add value. So it will add value, James, but my, my question is whether it's worth the the extra complexity and, and the other thing to be aware of is, of course, because you're using it's with AT, you're doing this with ATRs, whether that will match up actually to the, the the sort of exhaustion of the actual underlying trend or not, or whether it will be happening at a different frequency. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I agree with what you said, but I just want to add uh, a couple of things uh, to you, James. Just be aware, of course, and I'm I'm sure you are aware of this that that this, of course, only works if you have a big enough account size where you can have at minimum one lot traded per entry and exit that you want to take. So that actually a lot of people are uh, prevented from doing that. Yeah. And then the final point I just wanted to make was, um, because in my own train, trend following model, I do use multiple quote-unquote models and, and therefore entries and exits. But I don't think about them in the same way, right? So you could have chosen to say, the only thing that's going to be different between my model is my look-back period. You could do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Many models are built like that. We know that. But the way I think about it is actually is to combine different types of trend-following models. But that also means that they have unique exit-type algorithms, each of them, that can be quite different in how they behave. And to me... That gives me a lot of diversification because, of course, as you rightly said, James, we don't want to get stopped out uh, all in one go just to see the market move back in, in the way it came from. And there we are. So having thought about, you know, you could do it the simple way. I say simple, but I don't mean simple in a negative way. But you could do it simple way and say the only thing that's going to be different is my ATR or my look back period, whatever it might be. But you could also think about it a little bit more creatively and say, well, are there different ways of doing stop, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Maybe that's not for today because we have a little bit of a time stop. Maybe briefly, you brought up a third article, and this one, I have to say, I did not have time to read myself, so, so I'm sure you can give me the context quite easily, and I think I understand the topic at least. And it's just something you picked up from Schroeder's, I think, maybe to do with economics, rising inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So quick take on that, Rob. Uh, yeah, so this this was highlighted by this uh, institutional, you know, I, you, as you, we all get these emails, some of them better than others. This one guy who, who does a particularly good email and he's very good at highlighting research pieces from the buy side that are particularly interesting. So as we talked about earlier, you know, inflation, you know, it, when's the when is the Fed going to start talking about inflation? And I'm with the Fed in the sense that I think that the with, with the crisis still coming out, the crisis, the kind of inflation numbers are so noisy, you can't really 
tell anything meaningful about them yet. I think it's going to be at least 18 months before we have at least a vague idea, you know, whether there are inflation pressures in the economy or not. But having said that, people are worried about inflation and perhaps a good time to start thinking about inflation hedging is now because maybe when the picture's clear, it's going to be harder to get those hedges on more, more cheaply. So um, what these guys have done, and yeah, it is a piece from Schroeder's economics uh, research team, what these guys have done is do a nice quantitative exercise, which is to basically split history into four different types of time period. And I'm a big fan of this kind of simple kind of conditioning. I think it's really valuable and gives you a lot of insight. And they've then said, well, what in these four different environments, so that's high and low inflation, you know, along the top of your quadrant square, and then rising and falling inflation along the sides. So you've got rising and high inflation, rising and low inflation, and so on. There's four possibilities there. They've said, what kind of assets have done well historically in these various time periods? And the data goes back to 1973, which is, you know, pretty decent length of time. Maybe before then, you could argue because of the gold standard that, that we, we, it's harder to make light for light comparisons. So I think 1973 was a good choice of cutoff period. So I guess what we're worried about now is inflation that's currently low, but rising. That's the environment that the inflation hawks think that we're in, I guess. So, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to see, for example, that, that US treasuries didn't do very well in those kinds of environments in the past because, you know, they're nominal assets. That kind of makes sense. And TIPS, which are obviously assets that are directly linked to the price of inflation, did well. Again, that's not a huge surprise. More interesting, though, though, are some of the other numbers in there, because actually the asset that performed best in that type of time period in the past. Go on, Mor- go on, Neil, see if you can guess what it is. Trend following. <laughs> well, trend following is not on this graph, so it's a long only oh, okay. asset. Go on, have a guess. What was the best asset? Back then? Yeah. Well, no, over the uh, last 40 years in any of those time periods. Over the last 40 years in any of those. So, I mean, what have we got left? We've got equities and gold left. Yeah. Picked so up. I'm going to hedge my bet. <laughs> so, always good to hedge your bets. But actually, equities did incredibly well in those kinds of time periods. Yeah. So, 90% of the time, their, their returns exceeded the inflation rate. Gold, interestingly, was actually one of the worst assets. It actually did only slightly better than, than U.S. Treasuries. So gold actually historically has been a, a very poor inflation hedge in uh, in periods when inflation is is low and rising. In fact, gold has not generally done that well at all, to be honest with you, compared compared to most other assets uh, and compared to inflation. So yeah, it, it, trend following, of course, should be in there. And interestingly, commodities did well. So long only commodities would have done well. So you'd, you'd think that trend following would have done well as well, because it would have been long those long only commodities as they went up in price. But yeah, I, ju- I think it just goes to show that we can't make the lazy assumption that just buying gold is gonna is, is the best get out of jail free card for inflation. Obviously, tips, you know, would make sense to have those in your portfolio, but they are quite expensive. But there are other assets like equities that actually have done surprisingly well, even in periods when inflation has been a bit of a, a horror story. Well, when I said trend following, I didn't. I actually didn't mean it as a joke because, as you know, we started our firm in 1974, so we actually do have a track record that goes back to the same time period that you. And 1977, 78, 79, which were the years where we really had it rising interest rates, probably fueled by rising inflation. We had, to say the least, incredibly strong returns during that period of time. Of yeah. course, the models were different, and all those caveats we have to take. So I think that in a rising interest rate environment, which a lot of people said from the, you know, for for a long time, oh, trend followers can't make money in that. I completely disagree with that. I think we certainly can. I think we've done it. And I think that, you know, basically high inflation 
periods which we haven't seen. I mean, none of us really remember them. I was, is, I was is, born in 1974, Niels, so, you know. Oh my God, you're so young. <laughs> and so I actually think that those are the environments that where, where we really shine to a large extent because it creates more boom-bust economies, yeah. So anyways, we will leave it with that. Let me quickly run through some performance. And this is unfortunately uh, not quite the full April. It is as of Thursday evening, but it's probably fair to say that Friday was a bit of a down date for CTAs, but it's not going to spoil the positive wins. Beta 50 index up 2.85%, up 5.6% for the year. Sokjian CT index up 3.33 for the month and 5.95 for the year. Sokjian trend up 3.1% for the month, up 7.2% for the year now. Sokjian short-term traders index up 0.48% for the month, up 2.47% for the year. Of course, MSCI also had a good month, up 4.52%, up 9.25% for the year. And the government bond index, the world government bond index, was pretty much flat last month, down 0.01. Let's not share any further resources. I think people have had lots of uh, input about Tesla and all of that. I will say, though, that for those of you who subscribe to Grant Williams's podcast and, and really love to hear more about Tesla, go and listen to that episode. Next week, I'm joined by Moritz, so he will, I'm sure, come and with some interesting news on his from his side and topics. So uh, email us. He has your... to keep calling you Rob to make it. He'll call me Rob. Yeah, That's fine. Just, That's not just a problem. to keep everyone yeah, yeah, thoroughly absolutely. confused. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, we'll do that. So anyways, send us your questions as you would normally do. Info at toptradersonplot.com. That's the best place to send them and we'll do our best to answer them. So from Rob and me, Thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.